0: Give you that international sensation.
1: What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Queer Now, the Talk Film Society podcast, where we take you on a time-hopping journey through queer cinema, going decade by decade to discover how it has evolved over the years. I am your co-host, Dave, and I am uh, here with Manish Mothar. So Manish, welcome back, and we are on to 2019.
0: I'm very excited, I'm glad to say, Hope, (laughs) hope you're ready for this. I don't know if I am to be to be real.
1: So, uh we are covering uh Pain and Glory, uh which is a movie actually I think I only saw cuz you wouldn't shut up about it uh even before you had seen it. You're just like it's going to yeah, be it's yeah. going to be the best thing ever. It's, it's Almodovar, it's going to be phenomenal. And I think at this point I had seen like maybe one Pedro Almodovar movie. Um so and I, you know, throw back to our last episode I would like uh, congratulations from you for this. Because you know what I did to see this movie? I not only drove 45 minutes, but I paid (laughs) out of my pocket to see Pain and Glory. I did not use my AMC Pass, I did not use Movie Pass i used my credit card and paid my like because at that point i was living in california so it was like i think like 19 dollars, 21 dollars for a ticket so just putting it out there i went the extra mile because i did not think it would make it to amc and of course it did like a week later so i got to see it you know two or three more times in the theater but so yeah. one thank you well, for making me see this movie and two i will accept your congratulations now
0: no, congratulations. Um, you're <laughs> rock. Sorry. I'm sending you a medal in the mail.
1: Yes, I love it. Absolutely. But before we get into Pain and Glory and your, you know, obsession with Pedro Almodovar, um, let's talk about 2019 a little bit. So the one movie we're skipping, and don't worry, we're going to get to it. Uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, did also come out in 2019, depending on where you lived. <laughs> some, some people did not get to yeah. see it until 2020. So we're going to cover it when we get to 2020. Um But, you know, we kind of talked, you know, in our... 2018 episode. There were like so many queer movies. We we're like, oh god, what do we pick? Uh, not so much of a problem uh, in 2019. I was really between these two. Right. Um, but were there other like queer movies that stood out to you in 2019, whether good or bad?
0: Yeah, well, and of course there was the you know the, the kind of lesbian Bollywood romantic comedy, which is like groundbreaking movie. Like I cried. I cry every time I watch it or listen to the soundtrack because it was just very meaningful movie mm-hmm. for me. Um, and I believe you saw it on Netflix when it. Came yes,
1: there. Uh, and I'm so glad and, that I made you pronounce that and not me because I <laughs> hearing it now. Yeah, I definitely would have butchered that. Uh, but it's really good. It's really sweet. Um, and yeah. I actually watched it twice. Um, you know, and it's when you kind of cross. Like for me, as a white American filmgoer, when you cross culture boundaries, there is always a worry. Like, okay, am I gonna get this? Like, is this gonna connect with me? I don't have maybe I don't have the like the background and the history with Bollywood, so am I gonna connect with this? But that movie, like, I would recommend it to anybody. Like, I, I think it's totally approachable for just about. Any audience member, if you like romantic comedies, if you like musical, like this is for you. Um, so I would definitely highly recommend that. So that's definitely a good one, and one that we almost, I think, like when we first put together the list, that was on there. Uh, but yeah, there weren't a lot of queer movies in 2019, but the ones most of the ones that came out were phenomenal. Like, there are three that we've mentioned that are all just fantastic movies. So you know, pound for pound, maybe a better year than 2018.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, I think there's one that we should spent like, a little bit of time on, uh, which is Booksmart, which I think is, like, uh, was, like, the indie, you know, comedy darling of the summer, it seems like. Yes. Uh, I mean, there was one thing that I found that I loved about Booksmart, which is the fact that it was about, you know, Caitlin Devers' character, who was a lesbian, and she's, like, Totally out, there's no closet anxiety, there's no tension there. Um, and that's refreshing to see in a high school movie, but I don't know, like, Booksport has really, like, um, I've become less, like, enthusiastic about it almost daily since I saw it a year ago. <laughs> like, walking out of the theater, I was like, that, that was the best movie I've ever seen, like, so creative. And I definitely think it's very creative, very imaginative. But I also think that like nothing mattered in that movie. Why do <laughs> you know? You, like,
1: why do you hate women? I just I don't um, understand. Well, here's the
0: reasons why I hate women. <laughs> um, they can't write or direct. Oh no! <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm After my whole diatribe <laughs> on our last episode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually actually agree with you about Booksmart. Like when I saw Booksmart in the theater, like. To give it its props, I have not laughed that much in a theater in a long time. Like, and I was by yeah, myself; right. it was not just like, "Oh, I'm with friends and we're having a good time." Um, but it is a movie that, like, two or three weeks after I saw it, I was like, "Is it that good?" I don't know. It's good. Yeah. It's fine. It's enjoyable, uh, but it's not like, at least to me, it's not like life changing. Um, so it's it's a pretty fantastic debut uh, as far as direction goes. And I'm looking forward to what she does next, but it's also strangely, I, I definitely thought walking out of the theater, like, Oh, this is a movie I'm going to rewatch a bunch. I'm just going to like pop this on and the background. And it's just going to be so much fun. Uh, and I watched yeah. it one more time at home and I was like, you know, this isn't a bad movie, but I don't have any interest in watching this again. Like, I think I'm good. I think, I think I'm done with Book Smart.
0: I mean, I think all props to Olivia Wilde, who I think, yeah. um, Like, she directed the hell out of it. And, um, I mean, I know she hates reporters, but, um, (laughs) you know, because of her role in Richard Jewell.
1: Oh, God. Yikes. um,
0: Which is something that I'm sure people will remember for years to come. Oh, definitely. Yes, yes. The the new classic Richard
1: Jewell, (laughs) yes. Uh,
0: But, no, I think, you know, I don't think my issues with it have nothing to do with her or the actors. I think the, like the setup of the movie just feels so hollow now. Which just like, wait, these two people just like didn't party and now they're upset. And then like, they didn't think that they could like party and be smart. And like, also like everyone's smart. And the, like, it's just like, I don't know. I just, I don't really know like what the stakes were in that movie, but hmm. I think, you know, it is very cool to have, you know, a lesbian character who is open and not there's no angst about it that's very cool and i like i think that's like the one thing that we can all take away from book smart is that like we can have queer characters who like aren't like in the closet or like you know upset about it anything like you know having that sort of pressure on them
1: yeah, the only anxiety she really had was like finding someone or she had a crush oh. on somebody, but the anxiety wasn't about her sexuality. It's the same anxiety that everyone has in high school when they have a crush. Right. Like, oh, I can't talk to them. I don't know if they're into me. I don't know what their sexuality is. Like, it's something that is is something we all go through. And I think, you know, you bringing up this idea of it not having sex, not to make this whole episode about book smart, but um, – I think their Booksmart has a certain amount of clever and a certain amount of good and it's way more clever than it is good. Like there are a lot of yeah. things that that movie does where I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting. I haven't seen that before." Like the fact that there's no there's no like the bullies aren't really bullies. You know, like they're not really out to get them. Like there's there's like there's back and forth and there's like, oh, I don't really like that person or they said something mean, but they're not stupid. They're not dumb jocks. Even like the one who's coming off the dumbest is still going to, of course, this like, you know, five star university and that. So there's a lot of clever bits. But I think to me, that's why it ends up feeling to you and me a little bit hollow later is that clever bits don't make a long lasting movie experience right it's just like oh that's yeah. clever and then you forget about it um so yeah i know there's a lot of people that love booksmart and i think that also might be a piece of it too like to be honest um there was so much of a push like go see booksmart everyone's got to see booksmart that eventually it's like okay can we just pump the brakes like <laughs> i get it we should all love book smart and i do and i did enjoy it i did really like it when it saw out in the theater but there is a limit to how much you can hear this is the greatest you know high school comedy in the last 30 years without eventually starting to roll your eyes and being yeah, like, oh, yeah. okay let's let's calm down a little bit
0: I, I have a lot to say about that you know that uh Thing of like we have to see books more or cinema will die <laughs> yes. uh, because you know what there was not that energy for late night which was also written and directed and produced and starring women so yep, that's, true. Uh, that's true Olivia Wilde did not mention late night at all so uh, how dare uh, <laughs> now Dave I have very important question to you yes. about this year in queer cinema do you count Ma as queer cinema? <laughs>
1: I mean, oh, God. So here's the thing about saying, okay, is something queer cinema? I would love to say no. I I would love to say no, because uh, I think Ma is a bad movie. Um, But uh, we have to include it. Like it's there. It's definitely a part of it. I wish that it wasn't, but we do have to include the bad ones too. Like we can't just be like, "Oh no, yeah. only things like Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Pain and Glory for me, thank you." That is all that gets into the queer cinema canon. From
0: 2019. I mean, well, I mean, I'm kind of being jokey because I don't think Ma has any queer characters i recall it's, but, it's, but that it's that camp, that, like, camp it's that, yeah, thing. like for sure yeah that that performance is like made for drag queens yes you know to do and yes. uh, i mean i love ma i mean i think it's a bad movie but i think it's a good bad movie um but i just want to give it a shout out because like you know she's done a lot for us us days, <laughs> so.
1: so so true uh do you include like a movie like greta in queer canon
0: Then, because I don't, I I don't think Greta gets as crazy as Ma does. Yeah, probably not. You know, I think I think Greta has some like queer cinema scenes, like you know when she flips a table at the restaurant. Like that's pretty (laughs) much all you want. And like the climax, I think is very queer because it's like so like shocking. (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
1: So now we're gonna (laughs) talk about Pain and Glory. So we always kind of like to start, you know one was giving like a little bit of a synopsis and also talking about like if there's queer people involved in this movie obviously queer people involved in this movie anytime a movie is directed by Alvin DeVar you can kind of check that box pretty easily Um but I always hate these uh like if you go on IMDB like they always have these like one sentence descriptions and it just yeah. says an aging film director suffering from chronic illness and writer's block reflects on his life which technically is true that is what happens in this movie. But, like, if I read that, I'd be like, eh, that doesn't sound that great. And this movie is great. Like, I I can't speak to where it ranks as far as Almodovar's films, because I think I've only seen three or four of its movies at this point. It's definitely a huge blind spot for me. But, man, this is really good. This has got to be up there, because, like, if... So 2019 was also an embarrassment of riches for films um, like foreign language films. Um, So you have this, um, you have Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, and then you have our, you know, you have the eventual Oscar winner. So it's like you have these three incredible films. And it's crazy to me that it painted glory in any other year would have been my top film of the year. So the fact that it wasn't like says a lot about 2019. So yeah, but, I agree. but Pain and Glory is it's probably it's one of my favorite endings like of the last decade. Oh. Like it's such a gut punch when you realize what's going on and because of that I think it um, it stands up to rewatch unlike Booksmart. Um, so <laughs> every time you watch it you you pick apart more and you find more things and it's just like intensely crafted. And I was so impressed like in going back and watching this again and again, like how much you could get out of it on a second and third watch.
0: Yeah. I mean, definitely. Like I watched it again last night. Um, my third time seeing it first time since October, but I was just like, Oh my God, it's so well crafted. And you know, for me, um, I'm always hesitant to put a director's most recent movie like way at the top sure. of my ranking, just because like like everyone, I'm very um, very guilty of recency bias, sure. and especially me. I mean, I definitely have walked out of movies being like that was the best movie <laughs> I've ever seen in my life, and then like a month later, I don't even remember it. Uh, but I think <laughs> same. But I think with, oh. with Pain and Glory, like I think that. Um, it's uh, definitely in my top 10, possibly could even crack the top five because I think that it's so, um, it's so cleverly autobiographical. You know, mm-hmm. we always see like writer directors make movies that are basically about them, you know, like, um, uh, no one does it, you know, uh, so suddenly, like a lot yes. of, yeah, <laughs> right. And, um, And, you know, I mean, everyone does it, like Spielberg does it, like they all do it, but I, and Scorsese does it, like they all do it. But like, I think that, um, you know, Almodovar, like he is, his movies are, I think all of his movies are somewhat autobiographical, but Hmm. not in the sense that he's always like putting like himself in the film, but more that he's taking elements of his life and especially his childhood and his connection to his mother and his female relatives and the women in his village. Like I think the fact that his his movies are mainly about, you know, women and motherhood and sisterhood, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's the most autobiographical part of it. And there's hardly ever an Alvandover stand in. There's no like, little boy kind of like looking at everyone from the hallway and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I I think, you know, with Pain and Glory, like this is his most autobiographical and, um, you know, Antonio Banderas is like wearing Almodovar's clothes. The sets are like designed, (laughs) um, after his apartment. I think it's even the same artwork and they moved it. Like the red cabinets are Almodovar's Mm. and, um, but then I also think that he weaves in, um, Elements from his previous films into this one in like really interesting metatextual ways, and you know I re- remember thinking like even as I was sure this would be my top film of the year, like I was like I kind of don't want to see Elmo Dovar just like making his life into a movie, hmm. uh, partially because like I kind of knew that like his movies all have himself in them in very different ways. But I think this movie also plays with like m- metatextuality and um, uh, like the confrontation of like reality versus fiction mm-hmm. or versus cinema. And yeah, I think that's what makes this such an sophisticated such a sophisticated film for me because it's so it's doing so much, and I, I don't think you even really realize like. You can't even see the tapestry as as he's making it until the end, and then you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. And I mean, are we going to spoil this movie? Because it's, I mean, it's kind of hard for me to talk about it yeah, without. No, I, I think
1: every movie we talk about here, we're just going to have to spoil. Like, we just have yeah, to, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know we have been, but, you know, I just want to check it. But this yeah. is
1: very recent, so if you yeah. haven't seen Pain and Glory 1, what is wrong with you, go watch it immediately. Uh, <laughs> so we will be spoiling the end of this movie, and I think it is, like, the way this movie ends is truly a spoiler. It changes, it's not just like a plot point, it changes your entire perspective of what right. you're seeing for those right. two hours. So
0: it is important. Right, exactly. Um, so, you know, the ending, you know, is the ending basically, like, reveals that, um, well, actually, let's start with the fact that, like, this movie kind of jumps back and forth in time a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you have Penelope Cruz as, um, as a woman named Jacinta, who is, um, she's a mother living in the small village in Spain in Spain and her son is Salvador who is who will grow up to be Antonio Banderas and you know, these like flashback scenes are mainly about her dealing with kind of her loss of a husband who's like kind of drinking a lot and doesn't really pay attention and essentially moved her into a cave Um, yes. Which I think looked pretty cool, but I can see being a step below an actual house. <laughs> yes, literally
1: living underground. I mean, it's...
0: <laughs> <laughs> underground. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but she's like making the best of it, and like she sees in her son this potential to like break out of this. You know, like she encourages him to study, and he, you know, she realizes she's a, he's a good student, and he um, starts to uh, tutor like another um, another like neighbor that they have. who's like a laborer and she Salvador tutors this young man. Who's like probably 10 or 15 years older mm-hmm. and like they're teaching him how to read in exchange for this guy. Um, oh God, what is his name? Um, well, his real name is, uh, Eduardo, right? Eduardo. Right. Um, in exchange for Eduardo, like, kind of doing some, like, uh, repair work on the house and, like, basically building her a kitchen. And um, and so these flashback scenes are very theatrical in a way that Almodovar is, like, it's what we're used to seeing from him, you know, like, uh, he's famous for melodrama and Mm -hmm. things like that. And for being very artificial in his filmmaking. In fact, I, he has even said that, in some ways, artificiality is more honest than realism, huh. and in cinema, or things something to that effect, right? And then this common theme in his movies as well, because his movies are very, um, you know, metafictional. They're very referential, and you know, he's, it, you know, he always has this sort of element of like he knows that he's being artificial and that's like kind of the point of it. Right. He's not trying to be like grounded or down to earth or or realistic. Um, and so these scenes have that thing to it. And like, because it's on like I, you don't even think twice about it. Like it's all very flashy. It's not, it's not flashy, but it's all very, um, you know, some, um, trying to think of the word like grand, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. And like just like the way the lights hit and the way the characters talk and stuff like that, and and then in the end, like the reveal is that all those scenes with Penelope Cruz were um, scenes that he was shooting as part of his next movie, mm-hmm. and the last scene of the film is basically a pan out from. You know, Penelope Cruz and this young actor, and you see the lights and the mic, and then you see Antonio Banderas, you know, saying cut. Mm-hmm. And the movie kind of ends on that enigmatic image, and it really, you're right, like it really shifts your perspective on these flashback scenes, and you kind of realize that, like like with his other movies, the sort of theatricality of it, the sort of, you know, large in the life part of it is like, Intentional, right? And I it also sort of this like commentary on, sorry, um, this commentary on like reality versus fiction in a really interesting way.
1: Yeah, I also found it to be a really interesting way to look at memory. Uh, I think uh, yeah. when we remember our lives, it is very presentational. We don't remember our lives in terms of like, well, this is this is what it really looked like. Like, we have an idealized version of the world that we live through, right? It's not going to be, it's not going to be actually real. Like what we remember is going to be different. So I think, you know, and of course (laughs) him as a person, like everything is going to be framed in cinema. That is what most of his life has been, been about. So of course he frames his own memories as cinema, which I think is absolutely brilliant. And you brought up this idea of, you know, you know, this is very autobiographical in a lot of ways. And I think it takes a lot of courage to do that in this way, because a lot of times when directors make autobiographical films, it's, it's colored in a way where it's like, okay, I'm the hero of this story. Look at these terrible things that happened to me and I still came out. Okay. And I, you get some of that um, with Salvador's character with Antonio Banderas here, but there are also moments where you're like, Okay, this guy's kind of a fuck up. This guy's making some mistakes here. This is not Yeah this is not the smartest decision. He did not treat these people very well. You know, so I like the fact that even though it is autobiographical, it's not in a way where you're like, Oh yeah, our hero comes back to fight another day. It's not like that at all. And there's also you talked about the metatextual aspect and you know, doing a little bit of research and like reading interviews. Like essentially, this is in a lot of ways almost an apology to antonio banderas like he is the person who had been treated poorly by (laughs) amoldavar early in his career and they had this like falling out so for him to play this role of salvador who is essentially you know this autobiographical piece is a really interesting flip on here and is and we're so well rewarded by it because i don't think it's even close this is Antonio Banderas' best performance by a mile. He has never been this good before. And I was just stunned by this performance. And I had heard all of this going in. Like, Antonio Banderas is great, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, impress me. And then I went and saw it and I was like, oh my god. This is incredible. It's like just... You know, these phrases are overused with this kind of like tour de force performance. Like it really, really is like it really fits here. And it, you know, the scene with him and his lost love is phenomenal. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful and and also all the scenes with you know his actor friend who he you know he had the falling out with like their interactions like him like taking up drug use in his 50s i was just like okay but it all really works and there's not there's not a single note here that doesn't work like I think if anything because Antonio Banderas got a lot of the publicity for this and of course he was phenomenal but like everyone else in it is really good too. So like good, every yeah. it's absolutely like Penelope Cruz is phenomenal here. Like especially after you realize what's going on after watching it more than once like what she's doing here with actually a relatively small part It's pretty impressive stuff. And one thing that we didn't like focus on yet is, and we've talked about this privately and talked about a little bit on the podcast, in general, male nudity is played for laughs. Um, And Mm -hmm. it is very rare that there's a director that knows how to photograph the male nude form. Like Almodovar does here. Like, it is, there is one, right. and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Anybody who has seen this movie knows the scene I'm talking about. There's only one nude scene in this movie. And it is stunning. It looks like, it's I mean, the man taking. looks like a sculpture. Like, it just... Yeah. <laughs> Oh, like, like breathtaking is the perfect word. Like I remember watching this in the theater and not even in an overtly sexual way, but it just literally took my breath away. Like just the framing yeah. of this shot, this man's body, the way everything is formed, the way it's angled. I was just like, it's you rare. Just never, like I was like, I've never seen this before.
0: Like we don't ever never, see this. I've a scene like that with a male naked body and even the few times where I can think of, you know, a scene like with sort of the like male with like what people will probably call the female gaze on a male form, though it's still just like, it's still the male gaze on a male form, but just like, you know, like, like, um, thinking about like, you know, Daniel Craig walking out of the ocean, right? Like that's sort of like the famous, like, quote-unquote female gay scene but even though it still feels like it's still not the same though because in this movie like i mean in pain and glory yeah you're just like it's so stunning and the clincher is of course the little boy looking at him Mm -hmm. right and just like his eyes widen and he drops the towel and he faints Mm -hmm. and it's like you just never see like the male body have that kind of impact on anyone. And even like, you know, even with like Daniel Craig, like, I mean, we all love him, but like, there's no scene of someone fainting, seeing that. Right. (laughs) Right. Like, right. You know, he's still like an action. He's still also like the action hero of the movie. Right. Whereas like Eduardo, like from the minute you see him, he is like an object of attraction. And, um, he's subject to a gaze and i think it's just fascinating and like i mean like and the fact that it's like full frontal male nudity now this is gonna sound so perverse of me but like it just makes it that much more effective because mm-hmm. like you know what the scene reminded me of in moonlight um like i'm i don't know if you remember but like when you talked about moonlight i had that interpretation of the scene with, at, at the beach, you know, when you have her Lee in this like peak mm-hmm. physical form and you like, I always thought of that scene is like little in some way subconsciously is like, it's clicking for him that he might be attracted to men. Even like he, right. he might not know it. The movie doesn't press on it. And I think pain and glory possibly because it's European is able to like make that leap and to make it like, right. no, no, this is like attraction. And like, sure, I mean, it's weird to talk about a kid being attracted to someone, but even at that young age, like, we even at that young age, I think kids have some sense of, like, who can they be attracted to? Oh, and definitely, I think yeah. Even young Salvador is just, like, realizing, and maybe that's why he faints, you know, not just because of this naked man, but just, like, the, um, he's just overwhelmed by, like, these feelings which is new to him, so mm-hmm. just, like, has to, like, let his senses take over and collapse. And yeah, I mean, like, you know, Almodovar, like, he is like, I mean, this is why I think he's like queer cinema icon and not just queer, but like male homosexual icon Mm -hmm. because like, you know, he doesn't shy away from, you know, the sex and sexual orientation. You know what I mean? Like
1: even,
0: even the great queer movies that we have here in America, like, you know, even they, I mean, like, like we talked about, you know, a couple of months ago, call me, call by your name. Like, yeah, that movie is very erotically charged, but like, it does shy away from nudity in a way that, like, Almodovar just doesn't, and like he's not afraid to like lose a straight audience because like, he right. just doesn't, doesn't care about them. Right. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the whole naked man is.
1: <laughs> yes. No, but I think, you know, you brought up this idea of this kind of push and pull between like, is it him? Is it, because it's so sexually charged is it because this kid's overheated is it because he's shocked and i think it's way more on the side of just like overwhelmed with sexual energy and he doesn't he doesn't know how to yeah. function he can't process it because this is the first time i think we're we're meant to think this is the first time he's had those direct feelings before and like kids have sexual feelings like they just do like this is yeah. something that has been studied and has been talked about like so i think I think the movie's very clear on, on the impact and why this is happening. It's not just shock of a naked man. It's like, it's desire that this child of course has no idea how to process or deal with. And it's yeah. so like, it's so impactful for the audience. Like it's just, Oh, it's just, just such a beautifully, beautifully shot scene. And I think maybe the thing that this movie doesn't get enough credit for is how funny it is. like, The things people talk about in this movie are the dramatic moments, right? The, like, old relationships, the old flame coming back, the shared kiss between these men, the back and forth between him and his, you know, him and his ex-friend, him and his actor... But like the scene where <laughs> where they're supposed to be at this at this showing of Sabor of, of their movie and they're on the phone instead and they're both like messed up out of their minds and so they're kinda and they're talking via speakerphone and also getting in a fight at the same time. Like honestly, that scene could have been double its length and I would have been totally engaged and totally entertained. And, yeah. and Tony Banderas doesn't get a lot of opportunities to flex those kind of comedic muscles unless you count like the you know when he was in the Shrek movies and all that kind of stuff but like as a live action actor as a live action actor you know not puss in boots you don't he doesn't really get that opportunity that often and it was nice to see him be able to do that but also in a dramatic role it's not a pure comedic role but there's comedic moments and he's masterful in them
0: he often gets pigeonholed into being like a Latin lover. Yes. Right? Or like some kind of like exotic I mean like technically he's white but like he does play like you know, that kind of role and I think that um like he gets stereotyped into that role because like I mean of course he's this very attractive man, his accent is, you know, honey Yes. But um, I think that what, I mean, the the reason why, like, he and Almodovar, like, work so well together is that, I mean, Almodovar has used him in, like, so many different kinds of roles. Like, there's this kind of more melancholy but, like, funny one. There's, like, the creepy, like, horror villain in The Skin I Live In. And there's, like, the obsessed lover in Time Me Up, Time Me Down. There's, and also Law of Desire. There's, you know, the sort of, like, straight laced, um, like Mama's Boy in Woman on the Verge of the Nervous Breakdown, and like this, you know, virginal but like frustrated, like guy and like young guy in Matador, like he's like really like stretched, mm-hmm. um, stretch. Antonio Banderas is acting and persona and skills like so in so many different ways, so like. Pain and Glory, I think, is just, like, the perfect... I mean, I hope they work together again, but I think this is, like, the perfect combination of all their work together because, like, this movie is so chill, right? Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of those 80s movies with Almodovar and and Antoine Banderas and The Skin I Live In, like, they're very extreme. I mean, like, The Skin I Live In, like, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's, like, Mm -hmm. one of the ickiest, creepiest movies (laughs) I've ever seen. But, like, in a way that, like, I like because it's that, like... It's very intentionally like that. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it's not supposed to be, like, anything other than, like, icky and gross, but, like, it works for me. But um, but then you look, look at this movie, and it's just like, Salvador is just like somebody you just want to, like, hug and talk to. Like, he's kind of annoying. He's a bit of a jerk, like, very full of himself, but also introspective. And, like, he's hurting in many different ways, both physically and emotionally. Right. Um, so, I mean, like, that's why this title is so perfect. It's like, this guy is, like, all, he's, like, pain and glory,
1: you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Not
0: to sound so dumb, but, like, yeah, it's just, yeah, I mean...
1: I mean, in many, in many ways, like, you know, he's defined by his pain through 99% yeah. of this film. And maybe 100%, right. maybe even by the time we get to the end, he's still yeah. defined by his pain. And it, I love how it's, it's kind of, it's so brilliant. Like, this is one of, this is one of my favorite screenplays of the last 10 or 20 years. Like, I just think it's like just about a perfectly crafted screenplay, because I love yeah. the fact that the movie kind of starts talking about all his pain, all of his physical pain um, and about how essentially he only learned about the body because of how his was breaking down. But really, this movie is about his emotional pain, his torment. You know, through the men in his life, through his mother, like all these things and but this pain has led him to glory. He's been essentially and this could be true of the director himself and of this character that we're watching is that he's explored his pain through cinema through his entire life, and that is yeah. what has made him famous and made him rich, and you know bought, brought him all the things that you're supposed to want, and yet, despite having all those things, he is still. In essence, at the start of this movie alone, like that pain mm-hmm. is real. That pain is intense. And it's not just the tinnitus and it's not just the, the the not being able to swallow. It's actually the emotional bits, too. And something I've realized as I as I watch this more than once, let's not talk about how many times I've watched this because it's mildly embarrassing at this point. I'm kind of, you know, when you watch a movie that has a twist and this does have a twist, but not a movie that's dependent on a twist, it just like is. Um sometimes you look back at it and you're like, "God, what am I an idiot? How did I not notice these differences?" Because the thing I keep right. coming back to is Penelope Cruz's performance as his mother and his real mother who shows up in the movie in some ways are alike, but in some ways are very different. yeah the penelope cruz performed character even though sometimes says hurtful things and makes mistakes she says them for lack of better terminology she says them in a in the right way right in a way that teaches a lesson in a way that brings everything together whereas his his actual mother in this movie says some horrible hateful things and you're just like oh god there's nowhere to go from that so i think it's interesting that his idealized version of his mother as penelope cruz is one who like imparts these lessons and says the right things and even if she says things that are difficult to hear she says them for the right reasons whereas his actual mother sometimes just says things that She'd are just very mean cool. yeah she's just blunt and yeah. cold and in your face about it so it's like you watch it again and you're like of course this is a movie how did I not see this before? But again, that's like, I think that's like the gift of cinema, right? It brings you along with it. So you're like, oh, well, that's his mom and that's his mom. So they're clearly the same person. But then you rewatch it and you're like, oh my God, these are not the yeah. same women at all. And it does, you know, paint an interesting picture of how we, how we look at memory and how we look at the people um, that, that are important to us when we look back at our lives. Because in order for us – sometimes in order for us to function, in order for us to, to go on with our lives, sometimes we have to paint a rosier picture than what life has yeah. actually given us. Otherwise, we won't move forward. And I think you know this, this movie just has so many levels and there's so much going on beneath the surface.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that even, like, um, I think that, like, one of my favorite, like, one of my favorite sequences in the film, I mean, not even sequence, but it's, like, a good stretch of, like, you know, like, 20 minutes, I guess, is, you know, when his actor friend um, is, like, snooping on his computer and finds Mm. the addiction, you know, one man show, essay, what have you and imagines himself performing it and then tries to convince Salvador to let him have it and then actually performs it and that's how Salvador's old lover you know, comes back is because he happens to see that happens to buy a ticket and (laughs) is suddenly confronted with his own life story being performed in front of can him. Can is just So, <laughs> I mean, it's devastating to think about, um, but like, can you just like imagine like that? And like, just like how beautifully executed that sequence is where it's just yes. like all these like little coincidences are just like lining up mm-hmm. to like build up to this sequence of Salvador and Federico their reunion and how bittersweet they are, how they talk as friends and they go through like a roller coaster of emotions during their talk. And then it ends with like them kissing, acknowledging that they're both aroused by the kiss, but choosing not to sleep together, mm-hmm. which I'm like, I don't understand that, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, But I just love that whole sequence. I mean, I love both of the addiction, you know, um, performances, like the imagined one and the real one, Uh because, you know, I mean, it's Amadovar again, going through like this commentary of performance versus reality and, you know, um, and even the, like, fictional... I mean, in some ways, the fictionalized version of Federico, who's called Marcelo in the monologue, is another parallel to the fictionalized version of his mother. Hmm. Um, because I don't think the distinction is as clear as it is with the mother, but I think there's some... You know, it's romanticized because, you know, it's, written, it's a written monologue. It's fictionalized. Um, and, you know, when you... Uh, when you meet Federico in real life, and he's talking about how like successful his life has become, like he's married to a woman, he has kids, he like runs a restaurant, and you're just like, you can almost see like Antonio Banderas being like, why couldn't that have been right. me with you? You know what I mean? Like, right. like why were you this like drug addicted mess with me right. and? You can now you're with someone else and you're this like you're thriving and you're happy. But it's not like resentful though. It's just I mean it is a little resentful, but it's also like he's not throwing this like big scene about like that. It's all very subtle. It's all the performance, it's all the framing. Mm-hmm. Um and you know you can tell that even in the monologue that is not the true like there's some level of like romantic romanticization, yes. Romanticism in the monologue, <laughs> and sorry. Um, I th- yeah, it's just so like you're right. There's so many levels to this movie, and I, I mean, like one of the lines that his mother says in the hospital is she's like, "I don't like autofiction, you know, don't write a story about me." Hmm. But it's like you kind of need to have that autofiction because that's how you, um, reckon with your memories and I think that's how I mean you know Salvador says he wrote this monologue not to be foreign, but he wrote it to get it out of his system right and right. I think that's it was true of the mother as well it's true of you know his history with Eduardo and how no oh my god how the painting finds its way back to him like hmm. you just need to write it to get it out because otherwise you're just gonna you know build into this like chronic pain you're having
1: right yeah. You know, I, I like the way the way you mentioned the <laughs> romanticization. Sure. Because uh, this would be like, even though even though like your two romantic leads don't end up together, you know, they have their moment and they let it pass and they go their separate ways. This is in a yeah. lot of ways like a grand sweeping romance just without the happy ending. Right, yeah. like it, and it makes you think. Like, if um, <laughs> if Salvador made a movie about this uh, this old flame coming back, what would be the difference? Right, would it be it would it be a different yeah. story? Because like he is a romantic character and writes romantic things. Like, and you know, <laughs> in terms of the screenplay, as I mentioned, it's one of my favorites. But a testament to the screenplay is that he can. He could write about a movie screen smelling like piss and make it sound romantic. Like that is <laughs> that is a gift. Uh because in in anyone's anyone else's hands, like I don't think I don't think that monologue works. But it's just so like you kind of yeah. you kind of talked about it's not resentful, it's like more wistful than anything else. Yeah. Like looking back yeah, on was, what could uh, have been. You know, like if he had had his life together or if I had done something different and helped him in a different way, maybe we would have this life together and I wouldn't be in this pain. I would have something fulfilling or maybe I would have screwed it up in a different way. I don't know, but I would have liked to have had the opportunity. And you really, and none of that has to be said in the film. You feel it so deeply. And it's like testament not only to the screenplay, but to Antonio Banderas's performance. Because so much is going on between the, the lines of dialogue between these two men. Like it's just, and we talked about, you know, you don't see, you know, the male nude form like that. Also, you don't see, even in gay films, a lot of times you don't see two men this emotionally impacted by one another yeah. like you just it's so rare to see that intimacy without sex like and i was just like i'm so stunned like i've actually gone back and just watched their interaction like just in a vacuum and it's just yeah. beautiful to watch like it and like you know we talk about you know we pick these movies for a reason and a big reason that I wanted to talk about this movie it's not just because we both love it and it's going to be fun to talk about but I hope that on some level like at least one or two more people watch this movie because this is, this is one of those movies that I've recommended to a lot of people i probably recommended yeah. this more than another movie that we'll talk about on our next episode that I think is actually a better movie than Pain and Glory but this one I think is something that is pretty accessible and I want more people to see
0: yeah right no i mean i totally yeah uh, i mean this movie i think is very like accessible um like even if it has like little references to almodovar's past work um and features like some of his you know main players from back in the day like cecilia roth star of you know all by my mother has a cameo and mm. of course Mel p cruz worked with him many times banderas and Julieta Serrano, um, who plays the older version of his mother is, has been a number of Amadovar films. Um, There's even like, I mean, the story of Federico is actually in some ways, like a meta reference to a plot line and talk to her Uh um, in a way that I just, I just can't get over just like, you know, how he's able to like lift these subplots and put them into a new movie. And, uh, I mean, he, he does that in, like, the story of Volver. It comes from, like, a you know a line of dialogue in The Flower of My secret. Like, he just does this a lot where things just kind of move around, hop around, and he's always kind of, you know, rethinking old things and putting them into new ways. Um, so I think it's just, yeah, I mean, his his reverence for cinema, cinema history, his own history, like it could be so exhausting. And sometimes, sometimes that thing can be very exhausting with other filmmakers, but with him, I mean, I, I know it's like, he, like, it's my brand to be all about him, but <laughs> like, I think with him, it just like works because like, he just like does it with like a little bit of a wink and a little bit more like creativity and thoughtfulness. And I think just like, pasting his references on to the screen
1: yeah absolutely yeah just a fantastic movie and i hope i hope at least a couple people watch it uh because of our podcast so yeah all right so now we move to the russo test uh and i would be shocked if any movie from this director does not pass the russo test but we will go through our three steps One, the film contains a character that is identifiably lesbian, gay, bisexual, or trans. Yes, obviously. Uh, yeah. Two. That character must not be solely or predominantly defined by their sexual orientation or gender identity. They are made up of the same sort of unique character traits commonly used to differentiate straight characters from one another. So this is always this is always the one I think that is the hardest uh, to uh, to satisfy out of the three. Uh, so do you think uh, do you think it satisfies number two in this case though?
0: I think so because um, I mean he. Yeah, he's like, he has a lot of character beyond, like, and we hardly talked about his gayness in this movie, Great. I mean, in this discussion. Um, there's almost no, like, angst about it. I mean, there is a little bit, actually. That's not true. So, but, like, he has this, like, chronic pain. He's stubborn. He has his, mm-hmm. you know, desire to work, but, like, inability to do so. So I think in his relationship with his mother is, like, kind of based on his sexuality, but, like, not really. It's more that, like, she didn't want him to leave the village, even though she kind of didn't want him to leave the village. Yeah. So uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I think this passes number two as well easily.
1: Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. And three, the LGBTQ character must be tied into the plot in such a way that their removal would have a significant effect obviously he is our lead character everyone else is kind of in a lot of ways orbiting around him in this film yeah so, so i think if you remove him obviously the, the film
0: yeah falls there's apart. hardly any yeah hardly any characters really interact without him except for um like federico and the and the actor yeah they kind of have a little scene but for the most part everyone just kind of interacts with him
1: yeah absolutely and those two only interact so it can tie back to him like it's right like,
0: exactly yeah absolutely yeah.
1: so in rewatching watching uh, Pain and Glory for the hundredth time at this point uh, what did you learn from watching this
0: oh man I don't know uh, I think this movie does make me think a lot about memory and You know, how often... It's how easy it is to rewrite memories to make them a little bit more, um, like... uh, To make them a little bit more easier... To make them, like, easier to process. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think, you know, with his different portrayals of his mother, I think that's, like such a clear example of that is, you know, to sort of reframe our childhood, reframe our memories, and, um, I mean, I'm always thinking about metafiction, you know, Mm -hmm. with Amadovar, I'm always thinking about that, because it's his, it's my favorite thing about him, is Mm -hmm. how much he plays with, you know, audience expectations, and, you know, our own gaze and our own thoughts, so, Mm -hmm. how about you?
1: Well, there's two things that jump to mind for me. One one of them I'm thinking about, like, the first time I saw it is it's just so nice when you watch as many movies as people like us do. Man, it's so fun to be surprised by a movie, to be truly yeah. thrown for a loop by the ending of a film. Like, wow. Like, I, I still, like, I just, you know, there are, there are moments in cinema you remember. Right? That yeah. just get you. And When that, you know, as you mentioned, that pan back happened, like I gasped out loud. I was not prepared for that. And it's so rare because a lot of times a, a twist will come and I'm like, okay, that makes perfect sense. I like that they did that. And there's like this separateness to it. But that was just like I was so in it and so engaged. So it's nice to know that as a film viewer you can still be surprised in the best of possible ways so that is something i learned from watching this movie and something i've been thinking about a lot and it's probably because like i've been recently divorced is like the way that this man came back into his life in in the gentlest of possible ways like gives me hope like i love Mm -hmm. that i love that they came back together for an instant shared and intimate moment and moved on with their lives. There's like kind of a forgiveness there, and I really like that. And you don't see that a lot. Usually, when like someone is estranged, there's a reason, and they come back, and there's a big fight. And if even if they do work it out, it's because there is this big blow up. And I just I I like the idea that you know that it, within all of us we have that intimacy and that gentleness, and that's something like I'm right. really holding on to uh, with pain and glory. So that is what I learned from rewatching Pain and Glory. So that is it uh, for 2019. Uh, in our next episode, we will move to 2020 uh, and we will talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I am not prepared for because how does one prepare for that? Uh, but we will do our best. Uh, until then, uh, Manish,
0: uh, why don't you tell people how they can find you online? You can find me on Twitter at TheManish89. That's themanish 89 Also... Um, at Film society where you can cast my writing and my podcast uh, it pot to be you which you can find on Twitter at it to be you how about you David
1: uh, and you can of course also find me on Twitter at Dave A G N A. lots of of course movie talk uh, lots of politics if you're into that unfortunately because that is the world we live in uh but i try and keep it more focused on movies than politics so yeah there's a little bit of joy in the feed uh so follow me there and of course follow our podcast queer and now at queer and now pod and we will talk to you soon as we talk about one of the best movies ever made no pressure.